Salutations from space, and welcome to the Storytelling Podcast with your host and celestial navigator, Gemini Brett of More Than Astrology. This show honors the ancient tradition of verbal transmission, so each episode will begin with a new telling of an old myth or legend. We will then seek to unveil hidden gems of cosmological, philosophical, astronomical, psychological, astrological, and mystical wisdom woven into the web of these starry stories. We will feature original music and guests from all walks of the way. We are gathered here today to celebrate the marriage of heaven and earth, the as above to the so below, the as without to the so within. Let us begin. We are go for lunch. Leda. A most beautiful queen of Sparta was sunning by the river. Zeus looked down upon her beauty, and he wanted some of that action. You may know that Zeus was not the most faithful husband to his wife Hera. He knew, though, that Leda was entirely faithful to her husband, the king of Sparta, Tyndareus. He knew also, however, that Leda had a weakness. She loved swans. So Zeus had Hermes, Mercury, the shapeshifter, the magician, the trickster, turn him, Zeus, into a swan. And Mercury turned himself into an eagle. And now the eagle chased the swan all about this riverside scene. Through the air, over land and sea, Leda became very concerned for this swan's safety. And just as her concern climaxed, the eagle chased the swan right into her arms. She held it, nurtured it, protected it. She shooed the eagle away. Mercury disappeared from the scene and from our story, leaving Zeus right where he had intended to be as a swan in the arms of this beautiful woman who loved swans. I mean, really, 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 really loved swans. And this was Sparta, after all. So she copulated with it, becoming in the process pregnant with Zeus's twins. Now that night, Leda returned home to her husband Tyndareus, and in her shame, she did not admit what had happened by the riverside, but in her pain, she broke down. She cried. He held her, comforted her, nurtured her. He kissed her. And one thing led to another, and to another, and to another set of twins. So Leda was pregnant with twin twins, four children who, it is said, would eventually hatch from swan's eggs. Two immortal children of Zeus. These were Helen and Polydeuceus, two mortal children of Tyndareus. These were Clytemnestra 
and Castor. Two girls, Helen and Clytemnestra. And two boys, Castor and Polydeuceus, also known as Castor and Pollux, or as the Dioscuri, the sons of God. And these twins, these boys, well, they did everything together. They fought bravely in retrieving their sister, Helen, the face who could launch a thousand ships from the clutches of a kidnapper, Theseus. They were members of many quests in search of truth, including perhaps the greatest quest known, that for the Golden Fleece with Jason and his other Argonauts. They were renowned sportsmen, Castor known for his skills on horseback, and Polydeuceus as an unconquerable boxer. He was, after all, immortal. But Castor was not. And this was proven when at a very young age these boys found themselves in an argument with a couple of farmers. Some say the farmers themselves were twins and that this argument was over their wives or their daughters or mutual women each pair of twins was trying to court or, well, you know, the kind of stuff that gets young men into trouble. Regardless, in his rage, one of these farmers, Lynceus, struck Castor dead. Now Polydeuceus instantly boxed the last breath of life from that man's lungs, and Zeus hurled a thunderbolt from the sky, killing the other. So Castor's death was more than avenged, but this was not nearly enough for his brother. Polydeuceus begged Zeus to strip him of his immortality so that he may join his brother in the afterlife. And Zeus said, Strip you of your immortality? Really? Have you thought about this? This is your right as a god, as my son. And Pollux said, Yes, I know, Father, but I choose to forgo this right so that I may spend every moment at my brother's side in death as we have done in life. Zeus honored this truth and beauty of brotherly love. But ever the trickster himself, he sweetened the deal a little bit. Or I guess we could say he soured it. He said, okay, Pollux, but it's going to be like this. Your brother, Castor, is in the underworld, Hades, where mortals go when they die. And you, my son, will be sent to the heavens, to Mount Olympus. Save for every year, you will switch places. And as you do, you will be allowed to spend one day and night in each other's company, but that's it. So I ask you this, young Polydeuceus, is this enough for you? Do you choose to forego your right to immortality? knowing you will spend every other year for eternity suffering the hells of Hades simply to see your brother one day each year. Now Pollock shocked his father and agreed to these terms. So his father, the father, in honoring this truth, this beauty, this brotherly love, 
as only he could change those terms. And instead of dividing the twins, he placed them forever in the sky, side by side, as the constellation we call Gemini. And I believe this story teaches us the highest beauty of the Gemini archetype. Oh, the newspaper astrologers would tell us Gemini is two-faced and scatterbrained and schizophrenic and divided. Do we see that in this story? No. And to tell the truth, the mysteries of Helen and Clytemnestra might show us some of that Gemini shadow. But in this story, we find inseparable twins. Twins like many of those we know on Earth, those who share a mind, it seems. Wear the same clothes, even if they're separated by three states geographically, and if they are, that's hard for them because of this connection. But we see the trickster, the shapeshifter, the magician, Hermes, Mercury, the planet said to best represent the Gemini mysteries. The shapeshifting of the eagle and the swan. The magical mysteries and the nature of Don Juan, or in this case, Don Swan. The quest for truth. If you read the mysteries of Castor and Pollux, this shows itself again and again and again. And eternal youth, for the boys died young. But most importantly, in this quest for truth, the truest teachings of Gemini, which are meant to explore the divide of duality until we realize the wisdom that it's actually the unification of polarity. We cannot have electricity without a negative and positive charge. The yin and the yang are ever meant to be independent and yet dependent, so interdependence. But most importantly, in this quest for truth, it will truly only unfold if we allow ourselves to break free of limiting our consciousness to the waking reality. To explore the other dimensions and looking not only up into the rainbow unicorn candy land of the heavens, but also down and in into the underworld of heart and soul. For just as every constellation of the zodiac, Gemini rises and sets every day and night. So eternally at each other's side, the twins Gemini spend half their time in the heavens and half their time in the underworld below. As above, so below. Thank you for tuning into the second episode of the Starry Telling Podcast Show. I hope you enjoyed this story. 
Before we get on with the story, a couple of things. First, a deep bow of gratitude to New York trio Surface to Air, whose song Blood Simple you heard behind the last few minutes of that Gemini rap. We'll hear another song of theirs without me talking at the end of the show. And you can find their music and download their album at their website, which is surface2airtrio.com. A great moniker for this show, really because we're trying to bring the Gemini air to the surface. Now, this show was recorded in the field in two locations, first on a river by Washington, D.C., and second on a boulder cliff above Chaco Canyon, New Mexico, and recorded weeks apart, so a couple of themes are repeated, but I believe they're good themes. And in the second half, perhaps I'm tending to the Gemini stereotype of scatterbrained, starting many threads before finishing one of them, but hopefully bringing them all together in the end. I have this mantra that's these many branches I'm called to climb all emanate from the same trunk. And hopefully you will find that is true for the rap that is to follow. Sometimes we have to release ourselves to the challenge of starting many things before we can finish one of them and understand that when the river splits, it comes back together, having had more experience. Maybe so. And on with the show. Gemini. 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 Gemini who? Gemini and Gemini how do you do? This is your friendly astronaut, Gemini Brett. Today is Wednesday, Miércoles, Mercury's Day. June 17th, 2015, around 10.04 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. So I'm recording from a sandstone boulder overlooking Fajada Butte at Chaco Canyon, New Mexico. Around here they have a Gemini archetype called Cocapelli. And I thought it would be a good time to talk about Gemini because there's a lot of Gemini energy now. <clears throat> the Gemini sun, though just about to move into Cancer, right? Summer solstice is just as we have our longest day. And the sun moves into the seasonal or tropical sign of Cancer. But yesterday, June 16th, we had the Gemini new moon, the latter degrees of Gemini, and right with Mars, because the Mars and the Sun got together in the sign of Gemini on June 14th. Now Mars and the Sun only come together every 26 to 27 months. From Earth's view of Sun-Mars conjunction means that Mars is on the other side of the Sun. So in a way, it's the furthest from us, the most distance. But in another way, it's being lensed through the light of the Sun, through the energy of the Sun, beamed into us. And this is this new initiative, this new start, this Martian energy, which is this exhale, right? And it's balanced nature, this creative force moving out it's this uh, reset point in many ways. Now, some astrologers begin 
what's called the Mars synodic cycle, then with Mars in Kazemi in the heart of the sun at the conjunction. Some others, shamanic astrology, Daniel Jamario, for example, begin the Mars cycle on the opposite side when Mars is opposite the sun because that's when Mars rises as the sun sets and Mars is closest to Earth and brightest, but also retrograde. And speaking of retrograde, Mercury has just finished his retrograde cycle in the sign of Gemini, one of the signs that traditional systems teach us that Mercury rules. So in many ways, this is like the Mercury master cycle and having stationed direct recently in Gemini, we could say that he carries that energy moving forward until he does his next loop in the sign of Libra, September 2015. I aligned my tent here at Chaco Canyon just north of east, hoping I would see Mercury rise before the sun this morning. But he's not quite there. But over the next few days, it's just after summer solstice when Mercury will be at his maximum morning elongation, as high and bright as he gets in the morning sky. It's June 24th this year. And I've been working very devotedly with this Mercury cycle this time around. So in some ways, that's like the time to give the deep bow to Mercury for his support for the many strange teachings that have come to me. And I look forward to sharing some of those in the next episodes. But today is to talk about this Gemini archetype. And that's why... I love telling that story of Castor and Pollux, the Gemini twins. We can call them the Gemini twins because the constellation called Gemini, or that you'll hear me call the twins because it's no longer aligned to the seasonal sign of Gemini. The bright two stars of the heads of those twins in the sky are Castor and Pollux. Actually, they're Pollux and Castor. If we look left to right, as we tend to do. How do I know they're Pollux on the left and Castor on the right? Because often they're called Castor and Pollux, so when I look to the sky, I think of them as Castor and Pollux left and right. But no, this story teaches us, right, that Castor went into the underworld when he died while Pollux was still alive until they sorted out the whole deal. And this is true of the sky, and this helps us know that Pollux is on the left and Castor is on the right because Castor sets first. And isn't that Castor going into the underworld? Well, perhaps. Or definitely. But there are other ways to express the underworld, right? And one that I spoke about in the first episode here, which you may or may not have heard, was this idea of going under the beams of the sun or going into the cave as that great Mercury retrograde story seems to express it. Right when the sun gets so close to a constellation or a star, that star disappears. It's lost to the glare of the sun until the sun passes far enough by that that star then rises in the eastern sky. So the sun approaches from 
the west from the right. We see them as an evening star. The sun gets so close, they are under the beams and they are gone. The sun passes by, reborn in the morning sky with what's called the heliacal rising. And as I mentioned in the last episode, many of the ancient cultures set their calendars for the heliacal rising of significant stars. The Egyptians, for example, for the star Sirius, the dog days of summer, which we are in now. These are the 70 days of the year when Sirius, the dog star, is under the beams of the sun, or in the cave, or in the underworld. And the sun then passes far enough by that Sirius comes with its heliacal rise, can be seen in the morning. In ancient times, this coincided with the flooding of the Nile, the beginning of the agricultural calendar, and the beginning of the annual calendar, which they called the Sothic calendar because... Sirius was called Sothis. But it's also associated with Isis. And this is an amazing thing. And this, I think I'll speak much more about in the next episode because I'm speaking then about Orion and Osiris and Isis and Jesus and a lot of the fascinating kind of astrotheology that the stories of the stars speak to us. But Isis, who was Osiris's wife and sister, many see her as Sirius in the sky, the brightest star that Orion is Osiris and that Sirius is Isis. And there's some work I'll speak about again in the next episode, but by uh, an American man named Gary David, I believe, who wrote this book called The Orion Zone. Check it out. Who shows that, yes, the the pyramids of Egypt map the belt stars of Orion even more than just the belt stars. Teotihuacan in Mexico City. They're all over the place. Ireland, Peru. But that also in Arizona, the entire constellation of Orion has been mapped onto the land, the marriage of heaven and earth. And the correlation of Chaco to those earth-based star patterns is that Chaco is serious. It's one of the reasons why I came here this week. One of the many, many reasons. Another reason is I'm staring right now at Fajada Butte. And on that butte, there is a summer solstice marker, an ingenious marker. Really, it's just a um, petroglyph of a spiral on a cliff face. But in front of that petroglyph, there are two boulders leaning against the cliff that have a very slim channel between them, such that the summer solstice sun and only the summer solstice sun will shine its light through that crack of the two boulders and descend as the sun rises in the middle of that spiral. It's called the Sun Dagger by moderns. So take a look at that, Chaco Canyon Sun Dagger. It's just not working right now because the boulders have slipped some. And for this reason, people aren't allowed to go up there anymore. And it's a difficult climb up there anyway. But it's one of many, many solstice, equinox, lunar standstill, you know, what we would call archaeoastronomical alignments here on this sacred site. And this is true of this region everywhere. And this is kind of a Gemini thing. This like search 
for truth. What were these people doing? What were they thinking? I'm sitting right now under some amazing petroglyphs. I mean, some very much look like the constellation of the bowl that we know in the sky. There's another one that looks like the twins. And there's one of Squatter Man, which is kind of this infamous petroglyph because we find it all over the world. There's one of a man holding the shield, but the shield is a spiral. Last night, one of the rangers here at the park gave a, an astronomical presentation, and then we got to look through a big telescope at Jupiter and some of the Messier objects. It was a lot of fun. But one thing he said in this presentation was that he's a symbologist and that nobody knows what the spiral means, and he gave some great examples of what we think, you know, finding the center point, uh, going within the spiritual journey. But then two slides later, he showed a time lapse of the sky focused on the North Star, which we know these images. You see this great spiral, in a sense, or many concentric rings of stars as they move throughout the night around the North Star, right? <laughs> and I just smiled and didn't say, well, I think there's the spiral right there. We see this spiral all over the world as well. <clears throat> and the stars spiral through the sky. Really, they move in these circles around the North Star. And this would have been seen, so not through time-lapse photography, but if you sit with the sky and, the, and watch, you see this. And there's much astronomy, I feel, in these petroglyphs. So I would love to take just a month with one image sometime and see if I can find some kind of starry story in it. But there's no doubt that the people of this land in neighboring lands that I visited this week, like Mesa Verde and Hovenweep, they were great astronomers. These buildings aligned to the stars, the marriage of heaven and earth. So why is this Gemini? What does this have to do with the story that started this show? Good questions. Well, Gemini, in many ways, is about asking the questions. <laughs> Or maybe about answering them, but hopefully answering the questions with better questions, since the greatest questions can only be answered such. Maybe less of the journeyer in traveling to these sacred sites than perhaps Sagittarius is, but we always have to honor the polarity, the opposite sign, because they teach one another, yeah? So Sagittarius and the fire and the travel and the vision quest and the intuitive pursuit balances Gemini, the eternal youth, the trickster, the magician, the intellectual quest, wanting to know. And Sagittarius, as in the words of the great guru Jack Skeleton from Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, says, that's the point of the thing, not to know. And we can look also to the square points, right? Bring in the whole mutable cross, Gemini, Sagittarius, Virgo, Pisces, so Virgo, before I hit record here, I gave some tobacco <laughs> to the spirits of this land. Yeah? To ask, is it okay if I sit here and speak to a recording device <laughs> about your land and other topics? Here's my offering. And I wait for the sign, right? And the Pisces side, yeah, because I believe in that stuff. And obviously there's much more to all of those signs and to all of these archetypes. And this is why I love these starry stories, because they can really bring them to life. 
Gemini, we're told, is what? Duality, division, polarity is, you know, and some of the shadow sides that seem to be really pushed by the newspaper <laughs> astrologers. It's two-faced, schizophrenic, scatterbrained in this division. Well, that's available in the shadow. And there are some great stories about that. In fact, someday I'll record a story about the other twins, Helen and Clytemnestra. Not the happiest stories, those. But Castor and Pollux, this is a happy story. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. And it speaks of the beautiful side of Gemini, this nature of the twins. In division and duality, sure, we see that in the pillars here on earth, in the sky. But what is this study of duality all about? I mean, no doubt polarity is one of the absolute principles of the earth game. Hot and cold, soft and hard, dark and light, masculine, feminine, on and on and on. We live in a world of at least apparent duality. And now I know so many feel that the true way out is to find unity consciousness and we are all one, and I think that's beautiful and indeed true. And yet, here in the Earth Game, a place where my philosophical ideas say we chose to come, it is a place of polarity, of opposites. But we learn that hot and cold are the same thing. Different expressions of this thing we could call temperature. And this is one of the Gemini quests. And we all have Gemini, right? It doesn't matter if Gemini is your sun sign. I mean, I call myself Gemini Brett, but my sun sign is Scorpio, and I think I'll get back to that. I have a Gemini moon, I have a Gemini rising sign, but even if you don't have planets or angles that are Gemini in your chart, it's a house, it's represented somewhere, and we are all of the signs. All of these archetypes want to come alive and want to breathe through us. So who is your Gemini? But what is Gemini? Shamanic astrology describes the mutable signs, Gemini, Virgo, Sagittarius, Pisces, as a service to spirit, and that Gemini serves spirit in the air, the air of intellect. I like to say in this case, Gemini is the winds. And Gemini is trickster, shapeshifter, magician, heyoka, coyote, circus performer, traveling musician, you know, storyteller, bard. Cocapelli, Don Juan, the court jester, the only one who can tell the king the truth without having his head cut off because he's not doing so for personal gain. He's doing so in service to truth itself, in service to spirit. And the king can take this wise advice without suffering the shame of allowing the court to know he is doing so because the jester wisely delivers this information through the painted makeup of the clown, the blur of juggled swords, while spinning on a barrel or whatnot. There's a fun in this. There's a youth in this. And if we can explore the sometimes 
painful expressions of duality, feeling like we're separated, torn apart, we don't belong, we are opposite to that, this kind of thing that is so much part of our Gemini quest. And if we can have fun in it and dive into that and play in it and be youthful in it, then we find the magic and we find the truth. It's revealed in the air sign glyphs. Do you know them? So Gemini is the pillars, right? The two vertical lines. This is division. This is duality. When one becomes two. And we get to the next air sign, which is Libra. And here they are horizontal. And the top line is curved. The bottom line is straight. The scales. But the curved line, sacred geometry teaches us, is the feminine. And the straight line, the masculine. So here we have the feminine and the masculine lying together in balance. It's even more equal than an equal sign from this view. Now we would expect when we get to the third air sign then that they would just merge into one line, right? But they don't. Aquarius, what do we find? Two very rigid, wavy lines, sawtooth lines. Two. So some look at that and they say waves. Oh, and this is, it must be a water sign. Well, no. Aquarius, though traditionally associated with the constellation of the water bearer, is an air sign. But these are waves. Energy waves, prana, chi, pneumo, see? And that energy comes from the polarity, just like we don't have electricity without negative and positive charge, right? So we find the wisdom is that we don't want them to merge and become one line, but to have interdependence, to be separate and yet together, to play off one another to produce experience, energy. And that, to me, is the spiritual purpose of duality here in the Earth game and part of the Gemini study. Into the shadows, into the light. And we have to be careful with that, right? And there's this magic to Gemini, then. This trickster magic, this raven, crow, Coyote, Heoka. I've been speaking here to local people about the ant people. And the Hopi say that after the destruction of the first and second worlds, they were taken inside the earth to survive by the ant people. And speaking to some, to some local and some indigenous people about them, they say, yeah, and they're these tricksters, these, these little guys, and you have to be respectful of them and careful because they might come and, and take your stuff and hide it from you and this kind of thing. <laughs> Very kind of Gemini thing. It's kind of like these, uh, the, the leprechaun idea, right, in the UK. There's a place in Ireland, I understand, where before you go in, you're meant to take off your clothes, turn them inside out, and put them back on or else the, the fairies of that land won't let you through. So this trickster energy. And there's a magic in that trickster. And I've been reminded of, of one of my favorite Gemini archetypes, Hanuman, right, of the Hindu mythos. And I won't tell his whole story in storyteller mode here, but it's, in, it's important. I think it's important at this time as well. Um, we had that Mars-Sun conjunction you know, it's, a, it's in a sense a start of something very new with the moon right here, Gemini new moon, Gemini Mercury. There's this grand statement, I think, right now of 
can you Gemini? <laughs> and by that I mean, can you take it easy a little bit and remember that this is a game that we're here to play and that it's fun. So many of us in this community speak often about, oh, we're doing the work, we're doing the work. Well, that's no fun, man. <laughs> and sometimes the work is no fun. But I like to say that when we remember the work is actually play, then work begins to get done. And maybe that's just a perspective from our Gemini side. Well, Hanuman was a son of the wind, you see. And Hanuman was this amazing, magical baby monkey. Very early in life, maybe even on his first day, he decided to go eat the sun, because the sun, we all know, looks like a ripe mango. But this was a day that was meant to be an eclipse, and on those days, Rahu has his opportunity to seek revenge against the sun and eat the sun. Though the sun then moves through the other side of his head since he's been decapitated. That's another story about eclipses we can talk about another time. So anyway, Rahu went to Indra, the head of the devas, and said, Hey, what's with this little monkey, man? He's eating my son. It's my day. And Indra knew this was, was true, so he threw a chakra lightning bolt at Hanuman. It struck him in the jaw, and he fell from the sky. In fact, some say that Hanuman means dismembered jaw. And all the other devas were like, come on, dude, really? Like, throwing lightning bolts at a baby monkey because he thought the sun was a mango? That's cool? No. And they gave to Hanuman all these great boons, these great magical gifts. Invincibility, immortality, shape-shifting. But he wasn't wise enough to wield them. He was this baby, mischievous, curious monkey, you know? And so it said that he used to love to tickle the sages while they were meditating or steal their stuff and hide it from them. And enough of that happened before they went and complained to, to Brahma and said, look, this monkey, he's not wise enough for his magic. And Brahma knew this was true. So Hanuman was cursed to forget his magic. He never knew he had it in the first place after this curse was enacted by Brahman. But he became a sage he became very wise. He was his student of the sun. It took him much time to convince the sun, Surya, to take him on as a student, but the sun did. And the curse, you see, was that Hanuman would forget his magic until an outsider reminded him of it, because that time would come when he was wise enough to wield it. And that time did come. It came in one of the greatest stories ever told, the Ramayana, when Hanuman, seeking to help Ram retrieve Sita, his wife, who had been kidnapped by the Asura, Ravana, sitting at the edge of the waters that separate India from Sri Lanka, what they call Lanka, in the story where Hanuman had caught wind, was the place that Sita had been taken. He was looking at this watery expanse and verbally lamenting, I wish I could just turn myself into a giant, and in one stretch of my legs cross these waters and return Sita to her rightful home. So this bear is walking by, this guy Jambavan. He's like, what's that you say? He's like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, that thing about the, the girl over there. He's like, yeah, I want to help my friend and bring his wife back. He said, right, and you were going to turn yourself into a giant or something, right? 
He's like, what are you talking about, man? I was just saying that. He's like, well, why don't you do it? Um, because I'm a monkey. He's like, a monkey? You're not a monkey. You're Hanuman. You can do anything you want. And then Hanuman remembered. Oh, right. And all of his magic returned, which, of course, including shape-shifting. So he did turn himself into that giant and with one stretch of his leg, stretched across that watery expanse. That stretch that is called the Hanuman Asana in the yoga practice, right? The splits. And then he got there and he turned himself into a little cat and all sorts of wonderful things transpired. Things I would love to tell you in another storytelling podcast episode in the future. But for now, why do I say this? Well, there's actually this energy of Gemini all the time, Gemini magic, which is the magic of the trickster, of the youthful play and then there's, on the other side, the Scorpio magic. Which is more like the sorcery. The deep magic, the, the power. And it's the power of the heart. Gemini, in a way, is the magic of the mind, of consciousness. In Scorpio, the power of the waters, of the heart. And they do magic in very different ways. And obviously they're both important to me personally with a Gemini moon and a Scorpio sun. And, you know, I get a lot of flack for calling myself Gemini Brett when I'm a so-called Scorpio. But part of this is my, you know, one of my purposes is to remind us all that we are more than our sun signs. You know, there are many, many cultures, and for most of the astrological time where the moon was more important than the sun anyway, and the rising sign... Right? So Gemini is that for me. In shamanic astrology, we're coming from our moon, we're going to our rising. So Gemini are like these bookmarks, these twins on opposite sides of my path in this lifetime. But the Scorpio sun is the fuel that I use to get there. So why do I call myself Gemini bread instead of Scorpio bread? Well, Gemini's trickster. And Scorpio's kind of hidden sometimes, isn't it? So the Scorpio power is a different thing. And this is relevant for all of us all the time because we are all of the signs. You are Gemini. You are Scorpio. It's not just me and Ed Snowden and the NSA. <laughs> Similar charts. Um, but we all have that Gemini trickster youthful magic. The Peter Pan. The, the what was her name? The Tinkerbell fairy dust, you know? And we all have that Scorpio depth, that power, that magic. And it's alive right now, you see, because Saturn, on the exact same day that Sun and Mars were conjunct, June 14th, 2015, hours later, Saturn retrograded back from Sagittarius into the sign of Scorpio, where he's gone to f complete some unfinished business for a few months and some of that business of Scorpio is the power of magic. And Saturn brings form, but also might ask us, where has our magic been taken away? Can we bring it back into structure? And probably wants us to, yes, do a little bit of the work that doesn't feel like play around when, why, how was it taken, and how do we take it back? And the Gemini energy on the other side 
so much energy, Mars and Sun, the new moon two days later, Mercury having just recently gone direct in Gemini and reaching his morning height, yeah. It's like, and when we get it back, how do we wield it? Can we be playful with the magical powers so we don't get lost in some world of sorcery that doesn't serve anyone anyway? We're at this time of the Jambavan moment. I think so many of us are feeling it. Suddenly our magic is being returned to us. <laughs> what is this stuff? I mean, for me personally, it's like astrology. I didn't even believe in it years ago, and now it's my passion and my living and my practice. And this is happening for so many people all around of us us now, you know. Jambavan's here. The bear's here to remind you of who you are. You are Hanuman. You can do anything you want. And that Gemini magic, I feel, comes most alive through that play, through that youth, which doesn't mean have no responsibilities, not at all. It is to remember that we are children here who came for an experience and that even the painful stuff is the catalyst for growth, that there's a gift in some of that ugly packaging sometimes here in the earth game, in the dualistic experience that it can be sometimes. So how can we unwrap those gifts, even the painful ones, with a smile (laughs) and know that it was here to help us grow? I don't quote this guy often, But I'll tell you this quote from Jesus, a paraphrase, and it comes to us from a book that was way too cool for school, the Gospel of Thomas. So it was buried in a clay jar for 2,000 years, recently unearthed in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And it says something along these lines. Jesus said, The man, old in years, will not hesitate to ask a child of seven days for the truth For he who is last shall be first, and they will be one and the same. Cryptic Jesus stuff, right? Seemingly speaking to me of the potentiality of reincarnation. But there's something more here. There's something that says to me that elder does not mean older. Sometimes it is that bright spark in the baby's eye we can see in them that they have not yet forgotten, that they aren't all that is, that they aren't connected to everything before they are separated into their own experience here in the game. Yeah, there's that awe in their eyes, that imagination, the the true sense when we see that bright eye of the child that they can do anything that they want to. And it sometimes can be that Jambavan to our Hanuman, To remind us, oh right, and I am that child too. And I have that spark. And I have that awe. And I have that Gemini. So, how do I, Gemini? And how do you, Gemini? By being young. By having fun. By not forgetting 
responsibilities, but being responsible to that which most excites us. Follow your bliss, and bliss will follow you. Honor the true you, and you will be truly honored. Hmm. Well, it's time to hit the road. Thank you so much for listening to the Storytelling Podcast Show. If you've enjoyed yourself, please support by giving a like or leaving a comment or throwing some stars or whatever it will be and wherever you found this place and sharing it with others who you think would appreciate it. I can be found at morethanastrology.com. I give consultations and teachings and travel around doing presentations, which is what brought me down here and what will bring me to Santa Cruz in two days. Well, I hope to see you on Earth someday. But until then, I will see you in space. This is your friendly astronaut and storyteller, Gemini Brett, signing off. Love and planets all right and speaking of love i love this song by surface to air you can check them out and download their music at surface to air trio.com this is a rather gemini tune called matanzas composed by my good friend guitarist and gemini jonathan goldberger enjoy and i'll see you next time